love thy neighborhood. Okay, cool. Oh, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. Mission! For, For modern, modern times. What's interesting is this, uh, our, our, our penchant for asking questions that we frame in terms of what's right and wrong. Should I or should I not be longing for more? And I want to invite us to consider that like, you can't get away from the fact that we are longing creatures. It's not a question of should I or shouldn't I. It's like asking, should you or should you not breathe? This is a show about self-discovery. About understanding ourselves. About looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are. This is about how we relate to God and everyone else. From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. 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 To the Ineacast. Welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram and help you build better relationships. And for years, we have looked at how the Enneagram can help us have compassion and understanding for ourselves and the people around us. And this past series, we talked about how the Enneagram can help us in our relationship with God. And Jesse and I were both intensely impacted by that season. And it motivated us to take a look at another aspect of our life that's often in the intersection of self and faith, which is our desires. Yeah, you know, years ago, I heard Donald Miller say that uh, this was like the most simple version of a story I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, a story is a character who wants something and has to overcome obstacles to get it. And I think in a lot of ways, like uh, so often, all of us are living as characters in a story, the story of our lives, mm-hmm. and we have no notion of what it is that we want and what it is the desire that's driving us. Um, Or we like, we mislabel the desires. We sort of end up saying like, well, this is what my life's about. And it's really shallow. It's actually not the real thing that we're going for. And so in this series, I want us to think about that. You know, what is it that I'm desiring? What Mm -hmm. is it that I'm going after? What is it that I'm structuring my life around? Maybe even at a subconscious level, I'm not acknowledging it. And how is it shaping my world and my relationships? And so along the way, yeah, then we lose. We either settle for lesser desires or we lose the ability altogether to even know what we want. We're just, I want to make it through today. I mean, how yeah. many times have, I mean, I've said that. Yeah. I wouldn't, I just want to make it to today. Yeah. You know? Or and I just want to be left alone. I just want to yes, take a nap. Just, I just, yeah, I would, that is exactly what I want. <laughs> but that, it reminds me of... My husband and daughter and I, we lived overseas for a time. And while we were there, my ways to relating with God and others completely broke. Like I couldn't do it anymore the way I had done it for 30 years. And so I became this like dry, withered, discouraged, sickly version of myself. You know, I didn't recognize myself. I didn't know how to go forward. And this kind of a missionary acquaintance of mine happened to be in town and kind of I mean, really, literally by providence, we found ourselves alone walking these streets, you know, of France, which was, yes, very beautiful and did smell like baguettes and also sewage. And um, she, I was telling her, she was a very wise, godly woman. I was telling her that I just felt like this garden that was completely dry and, you know, the dirt was like cracked and lifeless. And she started asking me, what is it that you want? And I think I literally told her, I really want a nap. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, well, we can deal with that in a minute. But say you had a nap. What do you want? What do you want? She just asked me that. I mean, I am sort of a perfectionist and I felt like such a failure that I didn't even know what I wanted. Yeah. And I felt like she she knew what I wanted and I didn't. But she just kept very calmly, gently asking me. And I finally kind of blurted out, like, what I really want is... You know, that love of God that we talk about and we sing about, I want to feel it, not just know it in my head, but like really feel it. And she said, great, you can have that. Mm -hmm. And it was really shocking to me how simple and how easily she told me that. And then she walked with me learning new ways to tap into not only my relationship with God, but these deep 
longings that I had that I couldn't even name. Mm-hmm. So as we go into this series, that's kind of where I'm coming from is, you know, we want to be those people that are looking at each other saying, what do you want? Okay, no, but what's under that? Okay, no, but what do you really want? Yes. So here's what we're going to do is that in this upcoming series, we are going to do the work of helping uh, all of us explore what are the deep desires that drive us as people. And here's uh, just a little preview. A lot of us tend to think that, you know, in the Enneagram world, we've got this one desire. Yeah. And Lindsay and I are going to contend that we have all nine of these desires Mm -hmm. um, and that for different reasons in our life story, some of us have sort of put some of those desires to sleep and it's time to wake them back up. Um, and others of us have uh, have taken some desires and supercharged them yeah. in ways that uh, they are not built to hold all the weight we're putting on them. But before we get into our series on desire, we're going to kick things off today by just looking at desire in a more broad sense. Right. So our guest today is Kurt Thompson. Kurt is a Christian psychiatrist, podcaster, and author of the new book, The Soul of Desire. Kurt weaves together an understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian view of what it means to be human, to educate and encourage others as they seek to fulfill their intrinsic desire to feel known, valued, and connected. He believes that deep, authentic relationships are essential to experiencing a healthier, more purposeful life. But the only way to realize this is to begin telling our stories more truly. Through his workshops, speaking engagements, books, organizational consulting, private clinical practice, and other platforms, he helps people process their longings, grief, identity, purpose, perspective of God, and perspective of humanity, inviting them to engage more authentically with their own stories and their relationships. Only then can they feel truly known and connected and live into the meaningful reality that they desire to create. Kurt and his wife, Phyllis, live outside of Washington, D.C. and have two adult children. So with that being said, here's our interview with Kurt Thompson. So, Kurt, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you as well. Well, we're excited. We're going to be kicking off this new series uh, talking about desire. And one of the things that Lindsay and I are very cognizant of is that um, whenever somebody brings up desire, especially strangely in Christian circles, it almost always sort of ends up conjuring up, you know, this notion of sexual desire. And people sort of think of it in sort of an erotic sort of way. You're inviting people to actually think of desire in in much broader terms. How would you define desire? I I think I would probably say that I'm inviting people to think of desire uh, actually in deeper terms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the uh, the adjective I would use. Uh, in that, when we talk about the longing uh, that is within us, we would say that our longing is there because we are made in the image of God, and that. Uh, we have a longing that is expressed in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes when the writer says, for all things become beautiful in their time, and he has set eternity in their hearts. Now, some English, the NRSV will, of course, translate this Hebrew word for eternity in terms of what those translators think that they're only talking about, which is this notion of time. But in fact, when a Hebrew would use the word eternity, our English translation for that, or our English translation of eternal life, where we Westerners would almost automatically think about that in terms of time, like Mm. that time goes on and on and on. What the Hebrews are really referring to is the depth of the quality of life as God lives it. And if we're looking at the first page of the Bible, and we see one of the first things that we see is that God has made us in his image, but also one of the first things that we see is that God is a desiring God. Mm. And so when God says, let us make mankind, he has a council. He calls a council of the gods together in like, and in and, and emphasis saying, let's do this. There is an emphasis placed that is different from the emphasis placed on God saying, let there be light, let there be animals, let the water separate from above and below. This is a desiring God. And so for us, 
to be people of desire, uh, it tells us that we are made in God's image, first and foremost. And that, mm-hmm. and therefore, that our desire is infinite in its intensity and depth. Now, it's also equally true that when it comes to human beings, uh, we are our longings. If you map out our longings developmentally, you see that we most deeply long to have appetites met. Right, newborns and infants have appetites that need to be met. But the next thing you notice beyond their physical appetites is they long to be seen, soothed, safe, and made to be secure. This is this longing to be known, this depth of, as we say, every baby comes into the world looking for someone looking for her, looking for someone looking for him. Mm -hmm. This is the hard deck of longing. But they then take it one step further because when you get to the end of the first page of the Bible, heading into the second page of the Bible, we see that being made in God's image also means that in our longings, uh, we long for things in order for us to then go on and create, to steward, to cure, to create and curate beauty and goodness in the world. This is what we are destined, this is what we are made to do, to be like God in this way. This is God's longing for us to be in relationship with us so that we can then do this work in the world. Well, one of the most powerful ways that we humans make things is when we make babies. But the act of making babies, the act of sexual intercourse, is an act that requires great vulnerability. It's not a handshake. It's not a letter by the U.S. Postal Service. (laughs) It requires nakedness. It requires our willingness to expose the parts of us that physically are more vulnerable than any other part of our anatomy. And emotionally and neuropsychologically, there is a fragility to this. Now, by fragile, I don't mean that it's milk toast, but I mean that it is vulnerable and needs to be cared for carefully. And it is in that space that, of course, there is great depth of longing. Mm-hmm. But we have to acknowledge that when it that, that even even with sexuality, God has a built-in rate-limiting step. Two people are going to have sex. They're going to reach orgasm, and, like, it's done. It it doesn't just get to go on and on and on indefinitely, forever. No, there is a rate-limiting step. So even the thing that we think that we want, when it's done, it's done. But my longing continues. Mm. And so we see that even sexuality itself is pointing to something beyond itself. It is pointing to this longing to be loved, to be seen, to be known, in order for me then, and and, and specifically, to be known and loved by someone who is really different than me. And what is that longing to be known and loved by somebody different than me? Why the different than me? What is what is that longing? I've told people, uh, you know, I, so I've been married for 36 years uh, to a woman I don't deserve. And as I've said, when I, you know, I initially, you know, you, I, I, her name is Phyllis and I, I, we got married. I'm like, oh, I want, I really want to marry Phyllis. And then it's not long after this, you know, I don't know, six days, six months. I don't know where, where you, where you realize where I, oh, oh, as it turns out, I actually didn't really want to so much as marry Phyllis. I wanted to marry me. I just mm. wanted me to look like her. <laughs> <laughs> I really, what I really want is to have someone with me who thinks like I think, who thinks the things that I'm funny are funny, all, all the things. The, the one who won't criticize me for leaving my socks where they are, because of course it's okay that they should be there. All the things, right? I, I'm actually drawn to being like those who are like me because there is such great risk that being intimately connected with someone who is not like me at some point is going to mean that they're going to see something about me uh, that uh, I'm going to run the risk of them looking at it and saying, I don't want to have anything more to do with you. And, and, and this is why, like, why it is, I mean, when, I mean, you know, as we like to say, uh, there's nothing, uh, everything you need to know about human beings, you can find out in the first four chapters of Genesis, everything you need to know. And one of the things that you see in chapter, in the second page of the Bible, in chapter two, that when God takes woman out of man, this whole sense of like taking from his rib cage, that it requires a surgical intervention. 
that there is a wounding that require that is required in the creation of the other so that the other can be brought back as a model not just for males and females but for blacks and whites for hispanics and jews for like all of the catholics and the protestants in northern ireland it's it, like it all of the other who i would love to separate from and say oh, you are so other that you are now my enemy and what in Jesus, what God is saying is that, no, uh, it is with that person that you think is your enemy, who is the person with whom you are going to create the most beautiful artifacts of goodness and beauty that the world has ever seen. And nobody has been more at war with each other for a longer period of time in the world than men and women. And so if we begin to get that right, uh, we recognize that there is a lot that can be done in lots of different places. The challenge, of course, is that uh, sex becomes this weapon that we use, and we then end up thinking about sex quite narrowly and quite shallowly, so that when we come, when it comes to desire, of course, that's where my mind goes, but why not? Because I live in a world in which sex is foisted upon me everywhere, all day, all the time. Yeah. And so it's not just a matter of these abstract concepts. It's also a matter of the world that the real material world in which we live, in which evil is taking those artifacts of beauty and goodness that God has placed in the world and weaponizing them uh, and using, using trauma and our shame as a way to do that effectively. And so it truncates my capacity to imagine what my desire is really about. And so it's hard for me unless I'm having someone else ask me. So, Kurt, once you've looked at pornography and you've, you know, masturbated, what next? Now what? Right. Like these are the kinds of conversations that we that we don't even think to have because and, and because we don't have them, we don't get the opportunity to say, oh, well, actually, sex is just a marker. It's a powerful marker, but it is just a marker pointing us to something beyond itself. Mm, wow. That's so good. Okay, stay with us because when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kurt Thompson. We'll be right back. Here at LTN, we're all about helping people build better relationships. And we've actually created a brand new way to do that with our Say More conversation cards. Say More is a deck of 100 questions to kickstart engaging discussions. So there's silly things like, which famous cartoon character are you most like? And there's also serious things like, what has been your hardest goodbye in life? You can use our Say More cards with your family, your friends, on a date, at the office. My family and I have been using them at the dinner table, and I've learned things about my kids that I truly never knew before. To grab your own deck of Say More cards, Go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. And while you're there, grab a couple more decks. They make great gifts for Christmas or birthdays, and all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click store and get ready to say more because better relationships are just a question away. Hey, welcome back to the Anycast, Jesse Eubanks, Lindsay Lewis, and we are continuing our conversation with Kurt Thompson. We've talked about now, you know, we've got this longing, so we've convinced everyone, you know, that there's this deeper longing. But then the second guard that I think we see a lot of Christians saying is that, well, you know, when we talk about desire, we we think of Paul in Philippians 4.11, where he says, you know, he's learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And therefore, we read that as a, as a command to dismiss our longings. Um, mm-hmm. And right. we know that we, we should only want God, you know, in some ambiguous way and that we're his soldiers and our own longings must be wrong you know, or Or irrelevant. Yes. Yeah. It's like to be dismissed or wrong at the worst. Yeah. So then there's that question of like, should we long for more? Yeah. Well, I think um, what's, what's interesting is this, uh, our, our, our pension. When I say our, I mean like mine, like I'm at the front of the, I'm at the front of the line here, Uh, our pension for asking 
questions that we frame in terms of what's right and wrong. Should I or should I not be longing for more? And I want to invite us to consider that like, you can't get away from the fact that we are longing creatures. It's not a question of should I or shouldn't I. It's like asking, should you or should you not breathe? <laughs> that's, that's akin to that kind of a question. Should I or should I not breathe? We would say, well, gosh, that, Kurt, that's a silly question. But we might say breathing has different we, – we breathe differently under different circumstances. And in the same way, when Paul says, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, we want to be curious and say, well, what does, like, what do we mean by circumstances? Let me just, give, we'll just start with this one example. Uh, I'm, I don't know if either of you are parents. I'm a parent. Yes. And I, yep. and I remember, yep. I remember, you know, as, as we, as we say in the business, like, you know, there, the re, the reason why it's helpful to have other adults to talk to about your children is so that you don't kill them. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Because like we all know that there will come a time in each child's life when their parent will want to do just this. They will want to do that. But why don't we? Because like I would say that in the moment that I want to kill my child or the moment which I'm angry with anybody, not just my child, but with my friend, there are, I, I have a hundred different emotions that are coming at me. And yet with my child, instead of yelling at them, which is my impulse, Instead, I think about it, I breathe, and I hopefully, on my better days, uh, respond to my child with the best voice of loving kindness that I can come up with, rather than simply speaking to them in the way that I want to. Right. Well, how do I come to do that? I actually come to do that by becoming very familiar, especially with the voice that wants to yell at my kid. This is being content is about how do we then live in the world? But it does not mean that I therefore ignore all the other elements of my life that are also happening simultaneously. So when I say I have a deep longing for a milkshake, that doesn't mean that I'm going to get one necessarily today. I may not be able to get one, but it doesn't mean that the longing is in and of itself wrong to have. The question is like, well, what, what is that for? Well, if you had a milkshake, how would that be helpful? When we say I'm longing for, uh, I'm longing for a relationship, I'm longing for marriage, I'm single and I long to be married. We'll just say, look, that's an example. And it's easy for us to say, well, gosh, wait, you should be content with where you are. And what does that mean to be content? It means I can actually continue to be okay where I am while I simultaneously Pray the Psalms of complaint to my God that I'm not yet married. Mm -hmm. And so to be content doesn't mean that I'm only this homogenous, singly, emotionally driven being. When we say to love God, what we should do is to just think about God. Like, of course. And what does that mean? If you read the Psalter, the Hebrews were people who believed in a God that they, that they knew could take it. You know, I, I, I sometimes think, well, like, why do you need 150 Psalms? Like, why can't you just have like five? But when you read them, you, you recognize that you need that many words. You need that much language to carry the intensity and the duration and the volume of the human experience. And to be content over a period of time is to allow God to love all the parts of who you are. And so to pay attention to God, to be, com to be content is a practice of being with all the parts of me, including the parts that I don't like, including the parts of me that long for beauty and goodness in the world. This is how we are made. Jesus himself says, if y'all don't change and become like little children, heaven's not going to work for you. And children have no problem telling you what they want. Yes. <laughs> they have no problem doing this. They're, children do not believe that they're in the world to somehow like worship their parents. That's not why they're here. They're here to enjoy the life that they've been given. And as they age, they become aware that, oh, their parents are kind of at the center of this. And they become increasingly grateful for that. But it's not just because their parents is what the story is all about. They are as much about the story as their parents are. And Jesus is saying, God has invited you into this created dance 
to enjoy him enjoying you. Wow. And our and our brokenness, what our brokenness will tend to do is to uh, get us to the point where we where shame is so tangled up with this longing that the fact that we even long for anything other than this abstract idea of God itself brings us to shame because we're so afraid that God's going to be a tyrant and like we're going to lose in the end. Mm. It feels like so much of what you're talking about is this, you know, what the theologians call a uh, holy indifference, you know, this idea of Jesus in the garden. And he's he's saying, uh, God, I, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And it's this ability to go, I'm going to honor and recognize that I do have these desires. I do have these longings. These things are a part of who I am. It is a part of this moment in time. And at the same time, I'm also willing to relinquish. I'm willing to trust. I'm willing to continue moving forward, believing that God's not going to waste this and that, right. that God is worthy of my my trust. Uh, Kurt, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what's at risk when we diminish or even completely ignore our desires? I think you end up in my office is what happens. I think this is ultimately what happens because I think in some respects it's like um, – having multiple underground wellspring sources and somehow thinking that just putting a cap on it is going to keep the wellspring from finding its way to the surface. And the question, I think, as you as you were just pointing out, this notion of even Jesus in the garden, like we have multiple competing desires that can happen, that happens throughout our day. And we are forever in the business of discerning, oh, I have a desire to eat potato chips, but I also have a desire not to take in more calories today than I'm taking in because I have a longing to be in better cardiac condition. So I'm going to make that choice. So I'm having to discern this. But for me then to say I shouldn't desire potato chips becomes a problem because that's me pretending something isn't true about a genuinely beautiful longing. We can find things eventually to get onto a spectrum where we say, well, I desire, I'm really longing, I'm really longing for cocaine. And we might say that by that time, we get to some place on the spectrum where my longing for cocaine is related to other longings that for some reason my trauma and shame has so entangled me that I can't get to it at all. And that distress, which is what you're talking about, what happens when we don't pay attention to longings, that distress starts to show up with my anxiety in such a way that I can't contain that. And I'm then going to have to create other coping strategies. And some of those strategies are severe enough to me that they in and of themselves become problematic. In the work that we do in our confessional communities, this question, what do you want, is one of the most common questions that we ask. And we remind folks that these are the first words of Jesus in John's gospel. What do you want? In John 1.38, he asks the Baptist's disciples when they come to find him after John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are men who are longing for things, and Jesus is honestly trying to meet them in that space. And it's really important that we be aware that our king is someone who is routinely, throughout our day, wanting to hear from us. What do you want? Not just what do you want in the big picture, but what do you want right now? Is that all that you want? And tell me more about what's behind that longing and what's behind that longing. And to the degree that we are naming these longings, we then discover that there are some actions that we can take to move toward them that are legitimate, or there are actions that we can take to actually realize some of these longings are actually ways that I'm trying to cope with other longings that are not being met and that are actually a lot more about grief when we pay it, we, we like to say that we are people of great longing and we are people of great grief. And to the degree that we are not paying attention to one or either or the other of these, we will find ourselves creating for ourselves narratives that are basically overlaid with anxiety and are being run by our trauma and our shame rather than being run by this voice of Jesus that is continually curious and asking us, what do we want, and are you willing to come and follow me so that you can find what that will ultimately be? Gosh, and it seems too like in this age that we're all living in where we all have supercomputers in our pockets and mm. we have the ability to instantaneously 
numb ourselves. I mean, you know, I don't want to exaggerate and say that, you know, this is the hardest time in all of human history to slow down and to reflect on the things that we want because people in other eras have gone through far, far, infinitely more difficult things in life than, you know, many modern folks have gone through. But at, a, at the ability to focus, what a hard time it is, you know, for us to slow down and be able to start naming our desires. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's it's a really helpful thing to emphasize in that, um, and and you know, we could talk forever today about you know how much more difficult other times were. I mean, remember that suffering and difficulty uh, has as much to do with my awareness of how life could be different as it does have to do with the particular circumstances in which I find myself. And so, for instance, for people who never it never occurred to them that a thing like indoor plumbing ever existed. Uh, the notion of not having it wouldn't necessarily be a thing about which they would think that their life was difficult. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And and the same thing is true about this in 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 our in our world in which, as you rightly say, our pocketed supercomputers make it possible for us to imagine things that could be true, that could be possible for us, that actually won't ever be possible for us. The messages that are sent to us is that you can be anything that you want to be, which is categorically untrue. And you can be that as soon as and, and as conveniently as you'd like to be that, have that. And in this way, we are kind of culturally being trained uh, to be fragile we are culturally being trained to um, be unable to delay gratification. And in that regard, uh, it also means that um, the things that I want, uh, if I'm not able to meet them immediately and on my terms, I become extraordinarily anxious. But we are also being told that if I can't have what I want, then the problem is not with me when I'm in distress because I can't have it, but the problem is with the system in that it's not providing it for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. As opposed to, you know, in the ancient world, it was an issue of character. We have to develop mm-hmm. character that that allows us to know how to steward these impulses inside of us. And in the right. modern age, instead, we say, uh, well, no, character is only whatever I personally interpret it to be. Mm-hmm. My impulses are are defining truth. Yeah, and that makes it difficult when it comes to this question of longing, uh, because uh, as, as, as you just rightly said, um, desires are to be uh, guided, mm-hmm. curated, stewarded. Uh, they are not to uh, be the things that, are the defining characteristic of who I am. Uh, but that's, in, in many respects, this is kind of how we are training ourselves to become. Well, there's a word that you've mentioned a few times um, so far, and that is the word beauty, you know, or beautiful, when you're talking about desire and longing. And I know you talk about that in your book, um, The Soul of Desire, as well. So can you talk a little more about the relationship between desire and beauty? Well, I, I think that it's it doesn't take a rocket scientist, much less a psychiatrist, to, um, uh, we, we, we like to talk about this notion that uh, beauty is a thing that when we come upon it, we know when we're in its presence. Um, it is something that captures us. We have these, these three words that all begin with the letter W I talked about in the soul of desire. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. There are many people who are far more eloquent and have written and spoken about this so much uh, more beautifully, uh, no pun intended, than, than I have. But this notion that beauty, first of all, is it evokes a sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. And it secondly evokes a sense of welcome. Beauty invites us to be in its presence, whether it's a symphony or a sunset. We There's no sense that beauty is trying to like tell us, don't be with us. It, it, it's mm-hmm. there and it... it it's this felt sense of like, oh, we belong here. Like we, we were made. This is amazing. We were made for this. And if we are paying enough attention, uh, it also leads us to worship because we become immediately aware that this thing that we are beholding is something that we could never have created on our own. 
something beyond me is responsible for this. And it's easy for us to imagine that beauty, however, is just simply a luxury. We think of it as a rare thing. We, we, we put it in museums or we, you know, we border it off into things that we call national parks. Now, all these things are true and necessary, but it also can mean that it therefore ends up only being in certain kind of like cordoned off categories. And the challenge with that is that we then end up thinking, oh, it's just this luxury. It's the thing that it's an add on to life. Life is difficult. And then if we get the opportunity, we'll add beauty to the mix and then it'll make us happier, but not because it's necessary, except uh, if you were to do a thought experiment and we were to say, okay, if you were to imagine every square inch or ounce of experience of beauty that you have in the world, if it were to suddenly disappear, how much of the world do you believe would be left? And when you start kind of like taking an inventory of this, you consider like everything from any of your clothing that you like. You think of anything in your home that you like, this, this beautiful youth. You, you, you see what I mean very, very quickly. We come to discover that beauty is actually in all kinds of places that we very easily overlook. And so in the first, the first place, we would say, not only are we frequently unaware of the beauty that we are longing for and made for, we, we're not aware of most of it. But beyond that, we don't even come close to imagining the beauty that is to be seen and discovered in the very places where we would never expect it to be. And that would be in the places of carnage in the world. The places where our shame lives, the places where our trauma hides out. No one would ever imagine that beauty could be something we would ever see by gazing upon a crucified man. But when we look at that crucified man through the lens of Easter, we then can say there's nothing more beautiful yeah. than my crucified Lord. Yeah which then turns us to the places of our own lives where that same bloody beaten body resonates. And we are invited to look upon those as well, which we're not very good at doing. Like, I don't want to look at those things by myself, which is yeah. why we need the presence of others in our lives to train our eyes, to turn our eyes toward beauty and to recognize that when we see it, our longing becomes fulminant. Our longing becomes front and center, we recognize this is what we were made for. But so much of my trauma and shame has kind of layered over top of that so that I don't have, I have very little practice looking for beauty, let alone imagining that beauty is what God is expecting us to be transformed into. Like we're not just making beauty, we are becoming that. And mm. this is where the new heaven and new earth is leading. That reminds me of the verse, you know, of the, he's taking us from one degree of glory to another, you know, oh, that you're just becoming more and more glorious, beautiful, radiant, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, but that can only be true if what you're saying is true, which is that it involves the grief and the trauma because none of us escapes right. at least pieces of that, right, in our story. That's so right. That's right. I love that. That's right. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Kurt Thompson. We'll be right back. Here at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. There you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Relationships. 
Hey, welcome back to the IndieCast. Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. And we are continuing our conversation with Kurt Thompson. Kurt, you know, you know, you've talked about this a couple of times. You've brought up grief. You've brought up trauma. You know, one of the most helpful things in the book is that you give these clear definitions of grief and trauma. Can you give some of those definitions uh, for both grief and trauma to our listeners? When we like, when we, we like to talk about trauma. You know, there there are clinical ways of defining this. One of the one of the ways that we talk about trauma is an event, uh, either large or small, in which a person experiences the felt, the felt they perceive themselves to be overwhelmed by something. That's, that's pillar number one, that I'm overwhelmed mm-hmm. by something. I, this, felt, this emotional, this neurophysiologic response of I can't think straight, can't feel straight, can't behave, can't act, that's number one. Number two, is related to it, but distinct from it in the sense that I also perceive that I have no agency to do anything about it. And this is crucially important because we can find ourselves in situations where if my house is on fire and I'm overwhelmed by it, I still pick up the phone and call 911. I'm overwhelmed, but I still call the fire department. But we can have situations in which we are overwhelmed by large things or small things, single events, right? I can be in a bad car accident or uh, I can I can witness the death of someone else. Something can be a traumatic event that happens to me or something that I witnessed. But then we also have other forms of trauma that take the form of small events that happen repeatedly. And by small, I don't mean small in terms of their emotional uh, impact, but in terms of how it might not be uh, obvious uh, to most people. This happens in settings in which every everything from growing up in a house that's emotionally uh, negligent or uh, barren to you know experiences of sexual abuse or re- repeated events that take place in the course of a person's life in which they literally are overwhelmed and they don't have agency to change the course of what their life is. And the reason that this is important is because trauma utilizes and wields shame as a primary neurophysiologic uh, tool as part of its uh, process. And when we talk about then when we talk about grief, we talk about that's a, that's a word that is a bit of a placeholder uh, and, and at least for, for me and other other people would have other ways of describing this and talking about it. Uh, it is a word that is a placeholder that holds all of the emotional content that we would find to be unpleasant. So anger, shame, uh, sadness, disappointment, uh, embarrassment, all those things is in our grief. This is not the way the world is made to be. Our griefs are important for us to name because it is there where our deepest longings reside. And if I don't name either my longings or my griefs, most of the time that means that I am going to bind up energy having to contain my grief, contain my trauma, contain the shame neurophysiologically that is wrapped up in that, that is represented by brain cell networks in my brain that I am now having to actively cut myself off from and contain. That is energy that I don't have available to God and to the people that I love to create beauty and goodness in the world. And at some point, my brain system runs out of gas and it can no longer keep containing it the way that it has. And then I start to develop symptoms. Is that when we collapse into depression and sort of chronic anxiety? Uh, exactly. Because we, right. we, just, we, we just run out of energy and we just collapse. That's right. I mean, when people come to my office, they're quick to point out that there's something wrong with them. They think, yeah, I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I'm having panic events and so forth. And they would, they, we are, we, we quickly pathologize these conditions. And one of the things that we uh, work to train patients to learn is that when you are depressed, when you are anxious, the reality is your brain is doing exactly what it should be doing under the circumstances in which it finds itself. Your brain, in fact, is not so much broken as much as it is setting off the alarms 
that it needs to set off when there's a five alarm fire. I might not like the alarm system. Like when I'm cooking bacon in my kitchen, I don't like when the smoke <laughs> detector goes off. Look, it's just bacon. Like it's not really a fire. It's just like, could you please not do that? But it is doing exactly what it is meant to do when we find ourselves in a position where the brain says, you have asked me to do this kind of life for this long, and I'm not, I'm not able to do it anymore. So I'm going to let you know that we need help. And this is how it does it. That's so good. I, I've been reading through your book, and this was such an impactful page for me, or two pages. I can picture where it was written on the page because I reread it so many times because um, because I think, and I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is just Christians or if it's a universal, but you mentioned the thing about um, there's so much shame, you know, mm-hmm. around our grief mm-hmm. and our trauma. Um, and I think that that is so true. Um, you know, I was raised to be a very good girl, you know, and I have done that by and large. And mm. and so when I feel um, overwhelmed and like I don't have agency, I feel shame because I feel like I shouldn't be overwhelmed and I should have agency, you right. know, and right. and and that is the stopper of the grief instead of saying, right. oh, there's a grief here that I That's am. Right. Something has been, you know, taken from me. Something is missing or, you know, there's there's a lack of beauty, you know, or whatever that, um, you know, that. And I think that is so, you know, that is exactly what our adversary wants to do is he, you know, he's pulling at um, the fringes of our makeup, you know, and just, you know, any way he can he can take something that's already hurting us and make it even worse by now we feel shame that we're even hurting to begin with. So I just I just wanted to share that so you'll know. I mean, I read it to my husband and it was so validating mm. with mm. a lot of suffering that we have actually personally been going through to be able to say, oh, this is grief. Okay, this is what we're experiencing. This is how we can unharness it a little bit. And then, oh, wow, these this was trauma. It really was. We we have permission from Kurt to use this mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we use the word that there's that there's power there to be able to say this, it doesn't need to be ignored. It can be, right. you know, um, we can we can call it what it is and then we can deal with it. You know, we can unstopper the wellspring a little bit um, like you were saying. Yeah. Well, and I, I just want to point something out that you just named. I mean, it, it, it so it just so happens that you were reading on a page of a book that I wrote. And so you can say, um, we're going to take Kurt's word for it, that this is what this is, and we're going to name our grief. Mm-hmm. It could have been me. It could have been anybody else. But I, 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 I want to, I, I, I think we can't highlight enough that we need, uh, we often need desperately the voices of others to name our grief for us, to come and say, that's, that was trauma. That was painful. That was overwhelming. That wasn't because you were stupid. That wasn't because you weren't working hard enough. That wasn't because you weren't loving Jesus enough. That wasn't because of all the things that evil would love for you to buy into. That's because something happened to you. It's not because of the thing that's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. It's because of what happened to you. But our, our, our felt sense that the, the impact of our grief and the trauma and the shame, the very nature of it, so often cuts us off from others because of our shame uh, that we often feel like, you know, somehow I got to figure out what to do with this. I, I just need to shape up. I just need to, some, you know, I, I, I got to like get my stuff together here. And what we're saying is that this is, this is part of why Trinitarian theology is such a big deal. This notion that God did not leave his son alone. On Good Friday, and he and, and it is important for us to recognize that God grieves with us. We do not have a high priest who is unfamiliar with what it is like for us to be in these places of grief, but rather he joins us in that space to help us name those things, to untangle that grief from our shame, process through that, and so then be able to go on 
to create beauty out of the very places that we never could have imagined it happening before. It's so true. And I know that you talk a lot about these, um, you'll have to tell me exactly what you call them. I think they're soul communities. Is that correct? Oh, the, the, oh, the confessional communities. Yes, confessional communities. So what what is the role of, you know, sharing our desires and how do we cultivate those types of communities where we can, because I think that is what the church is supposed to be, but I don't think we're all experiencing that currently. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think uh, in many respects, uh, the Bible, uh, you know, like like a great movie, like a great, you know, uh, like a great novel, the Bible shows us things often without explaining things. And I think one of the things that it shows us is that the body of Jesus is intended to be for one another what um, our work in interpersonal neurobiology is now helping us understand about the mechanics of how that happens. And then as it turns out, the more we learn about the mechanics, the more we learn how it is that what we read on the pages of the Bible makes so much sense. This notion that for my story to be known by you, for me to be known by you, and especially the parts of me where carnage is the word that comes to my mind, the parts of me that I'm not really sure I want to reveal to you because surely you'll leave the room when you hear about them. Uh, what we come to find is that everything about my body's response to trauma, my body's response to anxiety, uh, all of that begins to change systematically when in the course of my revealing the parts of me that are traumatized and the parts of me that are anxious and the parts of me that are ashamed, when I reveal that to you in such a way that you gazed upon me with loving kindness instead of what I'm expecting to get from you, mm -hmm. it changes the nature of what my brain is doing. It changes my neural firing patterns. It reduces my anxiety. It slows my heart rate. It deepens my breathing volume. It relaxes my striated muscle tissue. Everything about my body becomes more content, more at ease, more comfortable and confident because of something that you are doing from across the room. And when there's multiple yous, when there's four or five or six or eight of you in the room, my brain is taking in even that much more. And so when we talk about the role of these confessional communities, we're really saying that God is using the way that we have been neurologically made as the very vehicle for transporting the work of the Holy Spirit in the course of our healing by being seen, soothed, safe, made to be comfortable and confident and secure, in order for then to regenerate the parts of my story that heretofore were nothing but carnage, see them differently, and now have energy to take risks in creating things in the world, whether that's new relationships, whether those are new, uh, you know, just efforts at creating uh, mercy and justice for those who are underserved, no matter what, whether it's creating the next new art project I'm going to do or the new business venture I'm going to do or teaching in the next school that I'm going to teach. All these things that we are made to create and curate in the world, we're much more likely to enter into those hard places when I know that the hardest places of me are being cared for, are being held, are being nurtured by that body that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12, where in which the outgrowth of all of that is the beauty and goodness of the world. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, even what you're talking about, it, this idea of um, the the ability to share desire and grief with others, like, gosh, I mean, there's just so many, I have so many thoughts to come to mind. You know, when I think of biblically, you know, the story, Jesus gets the news that his cousin John the Baptist has been murdered. And we're told that he wants to go be by himself. And so he gets in the boat. But when he crosses to the other side, what instead what he finds is he finds a crowd of people full of, of sick people, people in, who are wounded, people who are desperate, people in need. And then, of course, we see the feeding of the 5,000 take place out of that. And there's something that sort of happens in that moment, you know, if I'm using my holy imagination. Like, Jesus is in this place of grief. And what happens is that he rolls up to the shore 
and he looks out and he sees a sea of other people in grief. Mm. And there's this there's this moment of attunement and connection that happens uh, where Jesus, out of this mutual place of grief, ends up giving himself to others. Um, and then we do see him eventually. He goes into the mountain and he goes, you know, he goes and spends time alone. Um, but there's a there's an entering in. You know, the other mm-hmm. the other picture that comes to mind is. You know, and in the program that we run, Love That Neighborhood, you know, we say it's like the the Peace Corps with Bibles. But part of the work that we do is we bring these young adults from all different family systems. We throw them in this Petri dish, you know, (laughs) where we're like, hey, you guys are all going to live together. And one of the practices that they do is that during their first week of living together, they each share their life story with one another. Each person takes between 45 minutes and an hour and they share. And almost universally, people will come back to us later and say, I have never felt so seen and mm-hmm. so understood and so loved. And a lot of people will say that was the first time I ever shared X with, yeah. with other people because they always felt that they had to hide it uh, because they would be judged. And there's just something there is. It, it's, it's so it's so tricky. There's nothing more risky than going out into a community because they could mishandle it. And yet there is no other choice. It is the mm-hmm. only it is the only option for that healing to take place. We mm-hmm. have to step into mm-hmm. community. Um, right. Kurt, Kurt, is there anything else you would want to share with folks just on the topic of desire? Anything that we have not gotten to cover yet? Well, I, I, you know, there 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 are I think many things that we could say about it. I think that um, I think it is important for us to recognize that uh, if we you know the degree to which we take the Bible seriously and what it tells us about the time in which we live, it's fair to say that all the desires that we can easily name, everything from mint Oreo cookies to sex to Tesla to whatever football team you want to have win the next national championship, they are all pointing to this one deepest desire that we have waiting for us that is only going to be seen in the new heaven and the new earth. And I just want to acknowledge that it's hard to wait for that. It's hard to wait. We can we can know factually all the stuff that we've just talked about in our time together. And knowing all that is often not enough to make the longing and the fact that that longing is not being met really difficult to live with. Yeah, the embodied experience is still very painful. Right, it's it's hard. And uh, I I have a I have a book that's coming in August on suffering and the formation of hope, and it speaks to this very issue, that in our following Jesus, in our being a community that creates beauty and goodness in a world where there is a great deal of carnage, the work of that creation is necessarily going to require a certain suffering, because it's not all going to happen on our timetable. And I, I, want to, I want us to know and to hear uh, that uh, Jesus longs to bring us comfort in these communities and in his presence, comfort over the very fact that even when we know that the beauty of the Trinitarian God is what we're really longing for most, God knows that the fact that it's going to take time for us to get there in and of itself is a certain suffering. And that it is this suffering that he then wants to double down and come meet us yet again, even more deeply, as we are practicing for the heaven that's coming. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today and just for for all the work that you're doing, you know, um, with people, helping them, you know, work through, gosh, uh, we are complicated and hurt people, you know, shame, issues of shame, issues of desire, issues of how do I live this life in light of the realities that I'm coping with on a daily basis? And so we're super grateful for your work and, uh, and really thank you for sharing this wisdom with our listeners. Well, thank you guys. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I'm just, uh, it, it's, it's humbling uh, to be invited and it's an honor to have the opportunity to have the conversation. Special thanks to our guest today, Kurt Thompson. Listen, you can check out all of Kurt's work by going to his website, kurtthompsonmd.com. 
Also, check out his book, The Soul of Desire. That is what a lot of our content today is based on. Lindsay loves it. Mm -hmm. She thinks it's amazing. Also, our LTN team members actually read his book, The Soul of Shame, as part of their official curriculum. So we really appreciate Kurt's work. Also, special thanks to Crosspoint Ministry, who helped train us in the Enneagram. You can check them out at crosspointministry.com. This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. We provide internships focused on service, community, and discipleship for young adults ages 18 to 30. You can serve for a summer or a year and grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. This episode was written by Lindsay Lewis and myself. Anna Tran is our media director and producer. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere and Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community. <laughs>